uh, take our seats here. I feel like a, an announcer at a boxing ring. <laughs> Everyone, if you'll t- take your seats, we're going to begin. Bob's voice is out today. And so we're going to be doing a message that he had done originally, as you can see on your handout, back in February of 2008 about the emerging church. I think Bob's book on undefining Christianity, a book about the emerging church, is the finest book about the emerging church issue. And so if you're interested in more of this material, you can certainly look at his book. But uh, what I'll do is I'll begin with prayer, and then we're going to go through the video for about 45 minutes, and we'll leave 15 minutes for discussion. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together again in freedom and to look at your word and also to look at these issues where we can learn how to contend for the faith. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that as we look at the emerging church and we look at the issues of post-modernity, that you would help equip us to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect for all who ask. And Lord, I pray that if there is any postmodern relatives or friends or coworkers, that you would use this message to reach them, that you'd equip us to do so. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Session is going to be about the emergent church or the emerging church. It's called both. And one of the things that causes people to wonder about the emerging church is the fact that they don't know what it is. What's the emerging church anyhow? Well, there's a reason that that question is asked so much. It's because they hate boundaries and definitions. And they, many of them, like Doug Paget will not even have a statement of faith because statement of faith means boundaries. They don't want to say what they are and what they aren't, and so they use confusing and difficult terminology for people to follow. But what I want to do is point out that the uh, key thing that draws it all together is their eschatology. And it took me a long time, a lot of study, a lot of reading, and a lot of asking around and actually talking to some of the emergent leaders to find out, okay, you guys have to have something you believe that makes everything else make sense to you. And what it is, is eschatology. I'm going to cite this book you're seeing there, Emergent Manifesto of Hope. Tony Jones says this, quote, and if there's one core conviction I can put my finger on is an eschatology of hope. What I mean is that the folks who hang around the emerging church tend to see goodness and light in God's future, not darkness and gnashing of teeth. What that means is that they do not believe in a literal future judgment. They don't believe the things that you read in the book of Revelation or what you read in 2 Peter 3 about God pouring out his wrath on the earth and bringing catastrophic judgment on the the earth, they don't believe this is ever going to happen. And what they do believe is that things are going to get better and that the world is going to get better, the conditions are going to get better, and that God is drawing everything toward himself. And I'll show you this with some slides that are quoting some of their top leaders. And that's what makes sense. Now, let me show you a graphic that expresses just what I'm saying. The key idea is this eschatological idea of a rosy future that God is causing to come to pass through the processes of history. All of these other things that they talk about are tangential, but are logically related to their core idea of eschatology. And some of the terms they use are missional, and I'll talk about that, kingdom-oriented, open to the other. When I had a debate with Doug Padgett a couple years ago, some of you were probably there, that was one of his statements, was that they were missional and kingdom-oriented, open to the other, these things. They tend to practice mysticism, as we've been talking about earlier in this conference, and you'll find mysticism in the emergent church. The social gospel is almost universally agreed upon that the one thing we know we should do is go out and do good deeds and make the world a better place to live in. And the one that shocks some people, but this is definitely the case, they do not, other than a couple exceptions, Dan Kimball being one of them, 
they do not believe in a substitutionary atonement. And that means the blood of Jesus is necessary. To, uh, that God accepts Christ's death as a substitute for ours. That God poured out his wrath on Christ. And that Christ's blood averts God's wrath against our sin. They, they mostly have rejected that. Most of their leaders rejected that. Doug Paget does not believe that. And uh, when we, we were doing a radio interview before our debate, one of the, uh, I think it was Jeff and Lee show, and Jeff says, well, we agree on the basic things like the substitutionary atonement. And I looked over at Jeff, and Doug was shaking his head. I said, Jeff, Doug doesn't believe that. And he was shocked. No, they don't believe that, substitutionary atonement. But let's focus on the eschatology. That is the key driving issue, and I'm going to prove that by citations. When I was debating Doug in January of 2006 at our old building downtown, I specifically asked him, in fact, I had to bring it up several times because he skirted the question. Surprise, surprise. If you were there, you, you saw it. I said, is there a literal future judgment? And, and he would not answer yes, and he said no. I said, is there a literal future judgment? He said, judgment happens in history. Now. I said, well, how can it be happening now? Well, through consequences. But that we know to be false because that's what Job's comforters thought. And they were proven wrong. At the end of Job, if you read the whole book of Job, they were wrong for thinking all the consequences that happened in his life or God's judgment against sinners. Because sometimes people that do evil are very happy and healthy, and sometimes people that really love God suffer. So if this is the system of justice, it's a broken system. So emergent church leaders teach that the world will progressively become a better place because God is still creating that. Keep that in mind. God is continually creating. He's not done. And what that means is that there's still an infusion of God's creative energy that can overcome the chaos that things tend to, and even the law of entropy, we'll see that in a moment, and so the world will get better. This is Rob Bell, Velvet Elvis. He's had at least three different covers on that book. Um, I've just finished writing an article that will be published at the end of this month critiquing the book. But here's what Rob Bell says about heaven and hell. Heaven is full of forgiven people. Hell is full of forgiven people. Heaven is full of people God loves, whom Jesus died for. Hell is full of forgiven people God loves, whom Jesus died for. The difference is how they, we choose to live, which story we choose to live in, which version of reality we trust. Bell has a strange theology that says that everybody and everything is already reconciled to God. So all we need to do is change our thinking. Start thinking like God loves us. Start thinking like everything's forgiven. And then our reality will change. So it's a totally different understanding than the Christian gospel that we've preached. Okay? That calls people to repent and believe. And that talks about the substitutionary atonement. Let's get some more from Velvet Elvis. Rob Bell on heaven and hell. For Jesus, heaven and hell were present realities, ways of living we can enter into here and now. For Jesus, the question wasn't, how do I get into heaven, but how do I bring heaven here? Now, yeah, it seems strange to you because you read the Gospels, didn't you? But this is what they believe. This is how they talk. This is very typical for emergent church uh, teachers and writers and thinkers. Everything is about here and now. Now, this was, it's not new in some regards, because I heard that in the liberal social gospel church I grew up in, that rather than he people going to hell, they, they just go through hell on earth if they have experienced bad things. It's not this future issue. And so everything's brought to the here and now, and we're not concerned about heaven. And you can see that theme in these writings. I've read dozens of these books, and they'll make fun of the idea of going to heaven when you die. Uh, Brian McLaren calls it a consumer product. Uh, they, they consider it escapist. And they think it's just the most lame and, and worthless thing to talk about is going to heaven when you die. Because they are going to change the world now. 
and everything's going to get better in this life. Velvet Elvis, page 147. There's this place, this realm, heaven, where things are as God desires them to be. As we live this way, heaven comes here. So rather than us going to heaven, heaven comes to earth based on how we live. Let's have some more from Rob Bell, Heaven on Earth. Quote, a Christian is not someone who expects to spend forever in heaven there. Hmm. Anybody here expecting to go to heaven? Are you hoping to? (laughs) Nope, that's not the right idea. According to Bell, a Christian is someone who anticipates spending forever here in a new heaven that comes to earth. Heaven comes to earth. But not after judgment. Now, I realize there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and I, know, I realize there'll be a millennial kingdom. I believe in that. Not everybody does. But all of that happens after judgment. Okay? But there's no judgment. There's just heaven coming to earth. Here is a book that's very instructive. It's called The Language of the Emerging Church. A is for abductive. Someone handed me this a few years ago, and it turned out to be a research breakthrough. Just about everything that I'm going to be telling you about, you can find in this book. And it's laid out as sort of like a, a dictionary, and you look up the entries, and it'll tell you what they believe and how they think. Here is a quote. Now, this book was written by Leonard Sweet, Brian McLaren and Jerry Hasselmeyer. Sweet and McLaren are two of the top uh, emergent writers and thinkers and intellectuals. And here's what they say. Emergence theory incorporates into an intellectual and spiritual framework ancient and recent arguments of intelligent design with certain aspects of evolution. In this view, Part of the goodness of creation is an inherent potential to generate new possibilities so that more and more goodness can emerge. Do you see where that word is going? That within the creation is this intelligence. In fact, emergence theory is this, uh, comes from a guy named Wilbur, who is a Buddhist, and it believes that there's a consciousness in the creation. Okay, that this, that this chain of being and higher consciousness is built into the creation. And as we uh, realize this and cooperate with it, this, this inherent ability to evolve into a higher status, including higher consciousness and better conditions on the earth, is being released. There, the, so the world and the earth and life on it and human consciousness is evolving to something better. Now, what does that sound like? New Age, right? I mean, it sounds like New Age. Well, it is New Age. Wilbur's a New Age uh, thinker. And this stuff, it gets very complex. And I think it intimidates a lot of people. And I've gone to the problem of reading it and understanding it. So I hopefully can translate it so that people can know what's going on here. But think of it as evolution, only add spirit to it add consciousness to the evolution. Things are going to become more complex, more uh, beneficial by some in processes already at work. Now, the, the top theologians, where they got these ideas from, and I'm not quoting them because they're very complex, but these theologians call themselves um, Trinitarian panentheists. Now, a panentheist is someone who believes that God is in everything. But see, you have to have that for this eschatological view to make sense, because if God is in everything, then everything could conceivably be getting better. Because God's not limited. So in a sense, we're not, the system is being uh, infused with new creativity because God is in it. Remember this morning, we were talking about transcendence. They don't like transcendence. They have imminence in their theology at the expense of transcendence. Now, look at this uh, emergence theory that Sweet and McLaren said that they believed. Here's what Rob Bell says. This is in one of his footnotes. For a mind-blowing introduction to emergence theory and divine creativity... Set aside three months and read Ken Wilber's A Brief History of Everything. This is this Buddhist New Age guy 
who has this theory about consciousness evolving. And I went and read some of his stuff. It's very difficult, very complex, but very non-Christian. There, there isn't anything close to Christianity in Wilbur's teaching. So we have this cosmic consciousness that's evolving, according to this theory. Rob Bell has a DVD called Everything is Spiritual, and it's interesting that he, uh, once you know he has this theory, you can see that that DVD is really a fancy way of Christianizing um, emergence theory. Okay, then he also says this, quote, not only are we connected with creation, but creation is going to move forward. It can't help it. It's loaded with energy. It's going to grow and produce and change and morph. Now, some of you here are like me, and you have a few gray hairs. And you may wonder, what is this? I mean, honestly, most people that were trained in the 50s and 60s had a, had a more of a rational scientific view of the world and, and what we could see and what we can know. But to young people, this Velvet Elvis is just hugely popular. And this, this guy that I'm quoting is Rob Bell has 11,000 people going to his church, almost all young. The, the minds of your children and grandchildren are being trained in this thinking by these men. And people are being sold a bill of goods. They're being told, don't think that things are going to get worse. Don't think that God's going to come and judge. Don't think that God will ever come and destroy the cosmos that he created in an act of vengeful judgment. Just believe that it's going to get better because the very energy of God is infused into the creation and it's evolving both spiritually and physically into something better. Rob Bell. Rob Bell. Here's Doug Padgett, who, uh, as I said, I debated. God is constantly creating anew. What did it say in the Bible, in Genesis? Didn't it say he was finished and he rested? All right. I mean, just seeing if you're thinking with me here. God is constantly creating anew, and God also invites us to be recreated and to join the work of God as co-recreators. So God is recreating the world now, but he needs us to help him to do so. Another thing, pageant from Church Reimagine. Imagine the kingdom of God as the creative process of God re-engaging in all that we know and experience. Have you ever read that definition of the kingdom? I mean, there's a lot of different ideas about the kingdom, but that's one, this is new. But he's saying exactly what Paget, or I mean, what Bell said, and he's saying exactly what Sweet and McLaren uh, said. They're all teaching this. This is what they believe. The kingdom of God is evolving right out here now. Here's what it says. When we employ creativity to make this world better, we participate with God in the recreation of the world. So we're not heading toward judgment, we're heading toward paradise in this world. This is from that uh, A is Reductive book this, by Sweet and McLaren. Notice the first statement they make, the end of entropy. Now, entropy is something I studied when I was studying physics and chemical engineering at Iowa State University. It's a reality to the world that we live in, and it means that in a closed system, everything, there's always a net loss of energy. There's always a net loss. And when we were doing uh, equations for chemical engineering, we were constantly working with two laws. One of them's the conservation of matter, and the other one's the conservation of energy. And in an engineering application, on one side of the equation, you have so much matter, so much mass, using an atomic table, and so much available energy. And then, if you did your work right, you better end up with the same thing on the other side, or you get a bad grade. Because it, 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 it can't just go... So, you, so you're on the other side. But we had to put a symbol in there for entropy, because the energy never ends up what it's supposed to be. There's always less than what there should be. Now... Because of the law of entropy, we can 
use this as an apologetic argument for the existence of God because we can say that because of this law, the universe cannot be infinitely old. The reason is it would have already died of heat loss. So therefore, we can say that the universe had to be created at a finite number of years ago. However many of those were, it's still a finite, not an infinite number. Therefore, the universe cannot be eternal, and therefore, it had to have been created by something or someone who is eternal. Okay? These guys are going to say, we're just going to declare the end of entropy. Oh, that's nice. Everything's not going to turn to disorder. It's going to become more orderly. Well, how could you make a claim that we know is scientifically false? Because we're not in a closed system, right? We know there is a God. So let's just say God is going to infuse himself into the creation and change everything around so it starts getting better. Well, you can think that and you can say that, but how do you know that? How do you know that that's true? You can't know it scientifically because all scientific evidence says entropy is just as real now as it's ever been. So then what else? How do you know this? Well, you can't know it from the Bible because the Bible doesn't say this. It says that God's going to destroy the earth in judgment. Second Peter 3. Well, so how do they know this? It's just a theory. It's just an idea. It's just what we would like it to be. And they base a lot of it on the Hegelian synthesis, which is another issue that I decided to... I didn't want to get too much of a brain ache, so I'm just being gentle. <laughs> All right, let me, let me read this. In a, this is, again, lang- the language of the emerging church. In the postmodern matrix, there is a good chance that the world will reverse its chronological polarity for us. Instead of being bound to the past by chains of cause and effect... We will feel ourselves being pulled into the future by the magnet of God's will, by God's dream, and God's desire. One of the ways they describe this theology is that God is in the future pulling everything into himself, which is a fancy way of saying all paths lead to God. Without judgment. Now, what is this... This is, in some ways, this could be rebutted as being irrational because the chronological polarity gets reversed. So what does that mean? Well, that means instead of going forward toward judgment like the Bible says, we're going back toward paradise. Turn it all around. Paradise is in the future, even though for us we'd say it's in the past. Again, from the same book, language. This new vision sees the universe as only partially created, an unfinished symphony, a masterpiece in progress. In this eschatology, we are invited to be part of God's creative team, working to see God's dream for the universe come true. Now this, okay, God doesn't dream, he decrees. In other words, this is blasphemous, in my opinion. God is dreaming of a better universe. In other words, how is he using the term dream? Visualizing or thinking or dreaming of something that could be different than it is. But God knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things. He sees all things. And history happens as God's providentially ruling over it. He doesn't have to dream and hope something might come true if we decide to help him. This is not the biblical doctrine of God. I don't deny that these guys are really smart, but they're not smart enough to speak for God outside of the Bible. And you can say God's dreaming of a better universe. Now, who wants to help him find it? That's not a biblical doctrine of God. They're saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's the definition of a false prophet. More language, sweet McLaren Hasselmeyer. In this way, our relationship with God is more than interactive, it's collaborative. It's more than just a matter of God interacting with us. It is a matter of God inviting us to be creative partners in the construction of a world as it could be from the world as it is so far. This is what we used to call looking at life through rose-colored glasses. Oh, it's just going to get better and better. 
And in, in the liberal church where I grew up, I used to hear the good Lord wouldn't send anyone to hell. So we're just going to make a better world. More about their eschatology. In the new eschatology, modern charts, bizarre predictions will be left behind. You see the little dig there? As people who are being pulled toward, notice that being pulled toward an all things new world to come, we bear the fresh scent of the approaching spring, not the stale cologne of fading winter. And so this would be a, a total, total reversal, uh, of, at least of any pre-millennial theology, okay? We believe that God prophesied that in the end, things will get worse, right? But they're saying that God is pulling us forward, and it doesn't matter who you are. God is pulling the entire world history and the creation forward to some better outcome by this magnet or as he stands in the future. There's no judgment, but they're going to have a better place, and they don't have to worry about the Lord's return in, in the manner that we understand it. Tony Jones says this. I'm, I'm going to go back to where we were and then carry this citation along a little bit further. And if there's one core conviction I can put my finger on, it's an eschatology of hope. What do they mean? The world's going to get better. What I mean is that the folks who hang around the emerging church tend to see goodness and light in God's future, not darkness and gnashing of teeth. Now, who was it that said darkness and gnashing of teeth? Jesus. So you can't just say, no, I don't like when Jesus talks about hell. We don't see that. We're in a a conversation where that isn't going to be the case. Well, I'll tell you what. What God is going to do in the future, we don't get to vote on. Let's just take an opinion poll. Would you like to live in a world where everything's getting better or one where God's going to come back in judgment? Well, I like the one getting better. But what if he is coming back in judgment? That's the big if. They are banging their eternal souls on the belief that God will not bring judgment, knowing that the Bible says that he will. Tony Jones, quoting him again from Emergent Manifesto of Hope. The evangelical psyche has been shaped by Frank Peretti, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, into thinking it's not getting better and better, it's getting worse and worse. When things down here become bad enough, Jesus will return in glory. But those of us represented in this book, 23 authors, by the way, take the contrary view. We're caught on a tractor beam of redemption and recreation. They're all saying the same thing. Where did the tractor beam come from? Star Trek. I'm glad somebody besides me didn't waste his youth watching Star Trek. (laughs) I mean, wasted his youth watching Star Trek. The tractor beam. Star Trek. God has got us caught in a tractor beam. And what happens when you're in a tractor beam? You can't stop. You get there whether you want to or not. So the whole world is in a huge, massive, cosmic tractor beam that it's God's force at work being pulled into a paradise-like future. Don't be fooled. The emergent church is not about smells and bells and candles and crosses and all the stuff that you heard about and sofas and what have you. That's just the trappings. That, that, that's peripheral. They are about... This eschatology, there's no future judgment and everything in the world is going to get better. And if we start helping, it'll happen sooner. Traditional Christian view is that history is linear. History, according to Christian belief, theistic belief, for centuries, as long as we've been thinking about this, we've said history is linear. It begins with God's act of creation, and it ends in judgment. Now, depending on your eschatology, you might have a few different details about how that end actually gets here. Uh, someone who believes in literal Bible prophecy or, or premillennial will believes that there's a process, there's a great tribulation, there's a millennial reign, then Satan's unloosed, and there's another rebellion, and then you end up at the great white throne judgment, and then the names in the book, and then that's the end of history. 
as we've known it. Uh, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth, eternal order of affairs. Others are amillennial, and they believe that what happens is God comes back and judges the wicked and saves Christians and then sets up the eternal order of affairs. Either way, you have the same... I'm not saying they are important differences, but you end up with a linear view of history either way. It begins with creation and ends with judgment. We're just, the only difference is some of these details. The emergent church doesn't believe that. That's not what they believe. They've rejected the view of history that Christians have believed for centuries and centuries and centuries and thrown it out the window. Here's what do they have if not a linear history? Time progressing and going somewhere with God providentially ruling. Here's what they say. Language again. In spiral dynamics, each level of the past remains curled up inside us. A spiraling faith is one of timelessness within time, one in which the past is embedded in the future. I see I put a note on my thing here. Meaningless babble. (laughs) Well, maybe that makes sense to you. But we reject Christian theism and its view of time as beginning with creation, creation ending with judgment, or view of history. So that's what underlies this whole thinking. Let's look at some of the other things. Defining the undefined. The, the emerging church does not like to be defined because definitions create boundaries and they don't allow do not like boundaries because boundaries would limit their practice and their mission. The mission is chosen based on the needs and priorities of a given culture. So we're going to talk a little bit about this thing of being missional. That's the latest buzzword and is seeping into evangelicalism more and more, this thing of being missional. The target culture for the emergent church in America is that of young postmoderns, that's the younger generation, who reject organized religion and are looking for an authentic religious experience in a community setting. I think that's a pretty good, uh, accurate statement about who would be attracted to these emerging churches. So you find a community, and you want a hopeful idea that things are going to get better, and we want to work to that end, and we're going to do so together as a missional community. One of the key features, now we're I'm explaining my research here. One of the key features of the generous orthodoxy promoted in McLaren's book is that practice must precede theology. This means rather than going to a people group with a fixed set of theological beliefs about God, about man, about the world, about Christ, about salvation, about justification and the Holy Spirit, and these other important matters, one goes to the people first and finds a practice that fits their needs and priorities. You go out as a missionary with no theology. What do you believe? I don't know yet. I haven't got there. That's what it says. That's generous orthodoxy. And I have a whole chapter in my book refuting this and showing that it's absolutely impossible. And it's not true for them. That's what I'm saying to you today. They do have a theology. They're not irrational. These are smart people. Everybody that writes a book who's able to do so somewhat cogently has some sort of a rational belief system that they hold that's informing their book. And it took me a couple years, and I finally found out what it is because these guys are so good at hiding it, and they're, they're, they're like trying to nail jello to the wall. In fact, when I wrote my first article about this quite a few years ago, I, I likened Brian McLaren to the uh, Kimball uh, in... Uh, Green Acres. Remember, he never gave a straight answer. Well, uh, the Mr. Who was Mr. Haney? Mr. Douglas. Mr. Douglas would call the county uh, agent because he's having trouble with his cow, and then the, uh, the guy would come out, Mr. Kimball, and he'd say, "Oh, cow! Yeah, my cousin used to have pigs, and uh, no, that was my aunt. She had a cat. Well, I wonder about that." And he'd talk like that for a while and leave. And Douglas would go, oh, my cow, come on. Well, that's how I felt reading McLaren. It's like, tell me something already. You know, give me a definition. Don't just quit playing around with my mind. And when we had to debate, one of the, well, one of the respondents from the emergent church told me I was mean for making that analogy. But I said, I wasn't trying to be mean. It was the only thing I could think of. <laughs> tell me what you believe. All right. 
I'll tell you, I have to tell you what McLaren believes because he doesn't want to. He believes that the future is just going to get better and better because God is pulling us into this better future by recreating the world now in history. That's what he believes. That's what Sweet believes. That's what Bell believes. That's what Paget believes. And I believe a lot of others that wrote essays in that book. The thing that keeps them together is their eschatology. So that now makes some sense of why they believe this about being missional. It doesn't matter. Whatever you do, as long as you're trying to make the world better, whatever, by whatever means, it doesn't matter because it's all getting drawn into God. It's all part of this evolutionary process of the world turning into a paradise by processes and things and forces already in history. So don't go on a mission field and tell people that you are wretched sinners, God's wrath is directed against your sin, and if you don't repent, you will come under God's judgment, and when you die, you're going to go to hell. That would be, just saying that, you could, in fact, when I talked like that during the debate, people, I couldn't see them, but uh, Doug Padgett was sitting here, but people said his face is just red. He's, this is, everything I was saying is what they hate. They absolutely hate it. And so, um, if, but if you really believe that, okay, I'm not saying they're insincere or they don't really believe it. I think they really believe this. And that's why they're missional, because it really doesn't matter what your mission is as long as you're helping God by using your creativity. That's all, it doesn't matter. It's not important. So you go to a people and see what's important to them and then fit in with that. What's salvation? He says, I'm a Christian because I believe that in all these ways, Jesus is saving the world. By world, I mean planet Earth and all life on it because left to ourselves, unjudged, unforgiven, untaught, we will certainly destroy this planet and its residents. By the world, I specifically mean human history because, again, it was in, and is in danger, grave danger, ultimate danger, self-imposed danger, and I don't believe anyone else can rescue it. So he, God is rescuing history. Now, that is just exactly what I've been telling you about. This is a process, and God is working in the process to rescue history by working within history. God doesn't come at the end in a cataclysmic act of judgment saying, that's enough. The last soul has been saved and repented. As it says in Peter, just holding God back from destroying the earth with fire. It's according to 2 Peter 3. No, 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 no. We're in a process and it's going somewhere good. And that's what salvation is. Planet earth and human history are, are being saved in process now. An emergent thinking, one's mission determines one's theology. Here's McLaren, generous orthodoxy. Theology is the church on a mission, reflecting on its message, its identity, its meaning. Notice this is always unfinished and unsure. There's no clear statement. Well, we're just kind of on this journey and we're thinking about who we might be. And we're not sure yet. And, that, and I'm not just being sarcastic, just literally what they would say. And McLaren's famous for making statements about, I don't know if we even know what the gospel is yet. Things like that. Here's the liberation theology, which is not new, but again, it's creeped in, into the church through this emergent movement. Oppressed people, here's McLaren again, oppressed people would be free. Poor people would be liberated from poverty. Minorities would be treated with respect. Sinners would be loved, not resented. Industrialists would realize that God cares for sparrows and wildflowers, so their industries would respect, not rape the environment. The kingdom of God would come, not everywhere at once, not suddenly, but gradually, like a seed growing in a field, like yeast spreading in a lump of bread dough, like light spreading across the sky at the dawn. So the world is going to be a much better place as the kingdom comes through the processes of history and the efforts of the emergent church to help God recreate his own world. Missionally determined message. The idea that the Christian message is universally good news for Christians and for non-Christians alike is just some unheard of, strange, perhaps heretical. To me, it has become natural and obvious. That's McLaren. They, they make a lot of statements like this. So does Rob Bell. The, it's good news. Even if you're never being a Christian, it's still good news, and you're, you're really just fine. 
There's no requirement for repentance. You will not see the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You won't hear it, you won't read it, and you won't ever experience it in, in most of these emerging churches, with very rare exception. Here's what Paget says. For many pastors, statements of faith set the boundaries for the sermon. The problem is the statements of faith usually serve to keep people away from the church or then they draw them in. Well, wait a second. What's the point of being in a church if you don't have anything to believe? All right. What's the definition of church? Anyhow, aren't we the called out ones? Aren't we the ones who have been converted and brought together in the body of Christ? But we can't tell anybody what we believe because they may not agree. (laughs) Rob Bell calls what I preach brickianity. Building a wall with bricks, theological bricks. The deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the trinity, uh, eternal judgment, the doctrines, repentance, like it says in Hebrews. That's just building a brick wall. He wants to jump on a trampoline and it's kind of loose in the air and invite people to join him in jumping. How do you know you're going to end up in your leap, going to end up anywhere you want to be? Because you're on a tractor beam of redemption. You can jump all you want. The tractor beam won't let go of you. It's pulling you to the mothership. Emergent boundaries. I use this slide, by the way, in my debate. They're contradictory and paradoxical. They love paradox and mystery. So what is a church? This is pageant again. What is a church to hold of? It isn't a classic statement of faith. I suggest holding to all the church has held throughout its history. If a belief is in harmony with historical Christianity, then it should be seen as a valid position. This means people will often hold contradictory positions, but this is a good thing. Now, I put this slide up during a debate, and when uh, Pastor Paget had his turn for rebuttal, he asked for this slide to be brought back. And he looked at it, and he says, I like this. This is exactly what I want to say, and, I, and that's exactly what I mean. Well, my point was, a par- how can you have a paradox? So you have Arianism and the belief in the deity of Christ in the 4th century. The both, those, both of those ideas were held in church history. Arius says there was a time when he was not. Christ was a created being. The, the true doctrine of the Bible was the, the deity of Christ. He's eternal coexistence with the Father. Those were contradictory. You can't hold them both. It's an either-or situation. A paradox is like a square circle. You can talk about it, but you can't really visualize one, can you? You can't, you can't create one. It's a meaningless statement. So if you're going to talk in paradoxes, you're just saying, I'm not talking. I'm saying nothing to you. Square circle, square circle, square circle. One hand clapping. Back to that again. Not hearing anything, not saying anything. Wait, uh, there we go. A very fitting part to uh, pause it. We have 15 minutes for a discussion. And I just want to begin by, anybody have any thoughts or comments right away thus far with uh, what the emerging church is all about? <clears throat> Lonnie, in the, is that Lonnie? Yeah. I'm sorry, Lonnie, go ahead. Well, I just got one question. Where do they get the evidence for all this theology? Where does it <laughs> come from? Just among themselves? It's imagination, yeah, exactly right. In but, fact, but they, they can't yeah. say, well, I can prove this from this or that. Right. What, what's interesting is they're reimagining because they're free to. Now, here's why. What ultimately drives this is their epistemology, their understanding of knowledge. And so this is what's troubling. What happens is you have all these intellectuals. I use that term loosely because it's really dumb ideas that they hold to. But what they do is they develop a language in which they're talking about epistemology and they confuse Christians because the average Christian showing up to church hasn't been trained in in epistemology. So let me just explain. What we believe as evangelicals is based on what we call the foundational uh, principles. It's the correspondence theory of truth. So, for example, if I make a statement, a propositional statement, that statement is true if it corresponds to reality. So if I say I have $5 in my pocket, and you open up my pocket, sure enough, there's $5 in it, that statement was true 
because it corresponds to reality. What Bob, I think the real genius behind his ministry here to the emerging church, was he peeled back their epistemology. What he showed them is that they've rejected the correspondence theory of truth for something called coherentism. That means something is true if we all agree upon it. If the community comes up with... So, for example, a good example of this would be on... I mark this in my, my notes here on my finger. Turn your handout, if you will, to page two. <clears throat> and by the way, that's why I wanted to stop where Bob left off, because he's talking about this issue on the last slide that we left off on. I'll come to that. But notice on page two at the very bottom, Bob has that slide on the bottom left where it says the emergent world is supposedly getting closer to God, but not judgment. Notice what they claim. This is from Lang the Sweet and McLaren and Hasselmeyer. They say in the postmodern matrix. So notice right there, postmodern epistemology. So this now notice what he says is there's a good chance that the world will reverse its chronological polarity. Well, Bob addressed that. How do they know that it's going to reverse instead of heading towards judgment, it's going to head back towards the garden? Well, they just make it up. In fact, notice in the same quote, they say instead of being bound to the past by chains of cause and effect, that's a basic rule of logic, that every effect had a cause. So now they're espousing a world in which you can have uncaused effects. Well, that's like believing in pixie dust and magic. But as long as they all agree upon it, it's their new narrative. Do you remember during the Obama administration? They would have a narrative. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, right? Now, whether that had anything to do with reality is despite the fact. It doesn't matter because they all agree that that's our narrative and we're sticking with it. Benghazi wasn't a coordinated terrorist attack. It was because of some guy exercising his First Amendment right and, and created a video. That's the narrative. That's what we're trying to show is that they have built a whole system that is independent of reality. And the reason they feel free to do that is they take their epistemology from a man named, uh, well, one would be Hegel, uh, but the other one would be Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant said that you don't have access to reality. So the real world is, is such that you don't have access to the real world. But realize that that's a statement about the real world. It's a self-refuting argument. So, Lonnie, does that help? They have an epistemology where they agree on something. As long as they all agree, it's true. Whether or not it's connected to reality is immaterial. That's the, the core issue. That's what Bob was so good at showing. Yeah. It seems that with their belief that everything's getting drifting towards getting better, that these are actually measurable things that if you broke things down into categories, like is there more death? Is there more disease now? Are things getting... You could categorize bad things and actually measure them. So if we could go up to these people... I mean, I was at that debate. I mean, that was a while ago. So if you go back to them now and say, okay, are things getting better? You can... These are measurable things. Well, obviously they're not. I don't care what kind of categories you make, they're not getting better. So would they come back with, well, it's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, things go up, things go down, you know, like the economy. It goes up peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, and at the end we're going to all end up better. So uh, I wonder what their response to that would be. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Yeah. Um, Bob just wrote down in the note here, he said, blame it on the resistors. And that is true. We're the resistors. We're holding to the idea that you can cognitively know God through Scripture, and we're the ones who are holding back this cosmic evolution. So Bob's exactly right. What drives their whole movement is their eschatology. The idea of emergence theory is the idea that everything is going to evolve, and that's why they choose mysticism. Mysticism is a way in which they're going to help the cosmos, because remember, God is in the cosmos, evolve into something better. So, in fact, remember you had talked to uh, Ken Wilbur, and it was an interview, or you didn't talk to him, but you had heard him say that, look, some, some kid asked Ken Wilbur, Ken Wilbur is an emergent, and he believes in emergence theory, and this kid was having a hard time understanding what Ken Wilbur was talking about. And you can see why. They've just created up. A, they've created a whole new language, right? So this kid asked 
Ken Wilbur, what do you mean by all of this? And he said, it's not important, just go meditate. Because it's through the process of meditation that we're going to affect the cosmos. God is in the cosmos, and he's creating all things new, and he's going to reverse this polarity, and we're going to head towards the garden rather than judgment. That's why mysticism is so important to them. Yes, Peter. So a a couple of things. Uh, Before we attended TCF, we had gone to... um, a presentation debunking the emergent church only to find out we were in the emergent church my wife and I and so we had read all the Brian McLaren books this was part of the program and I would get so frustrated because you'd start out well it seemed like a decent bunny trail and by the end of it you were so convoluted confused I said this stands for nothing. This guy stands for nothing. I came to that conclusion on my own with a little help from my wife. But the words that Bob and Eric preached, number one, Bob would say in a $64 word, basically, that they're deconstructionists in terms of no linear history. They try to uh, jumble everything all up so there is no direction that you're headed. The idea of repentance didn't exist. I think also in terms of what you're talking about, Eric, really when they all agree on something, it's kind of like, or <laughs> it's, it's a form of, of uh, um, oh, what's moral relativity. Yeah. And what you always said about some of our past political leaders were that they established their own reality and they live in it whether it's true or not. And I think a lot of us can see that not only in the churches, uh, but just in a lot of different philosophies that we see. Absolutely, Peter. Well said. Um, Bob used to call, do you remember this, Bob? You would call Brian McLaren the little engine that can't. I think I can't. I think I can't. And the reason he said that, Bob was making actually a profound point. We believe that we can know truth. The biggest dividing line is in our epistemology, we believe that we can actually know God through cognitive understanding of the scriptures. They've jettisoned that. You can't know. Brian McLaren's whole theory of life is you cannot know. You can never come to a true interpretation. Well, one of the passages that meant a lot to me when I was standing against the emerging church, and it was something that Bob had shared at Northwestern College, was in John twelve forty eight. Remember, Jesus says, this is that which will judge you on the last day, the very words that I have spoken. Well, how could Jesus, the creator of all things, say that if we could never come to a true interpretation? We're going to be getting into 1 John five thirteen, where, he, or we just covered that, actually, where he says, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. Well, that's a passage that shows that we can know. But what you're saying, Peter, is Brian McLaren was deliberately convoluting everything because he wants to be ambiguous. What they're really claiming is they can never come to a true interpretation. So if you can never come to a true interpretation of Scripture, what are you left with? Well, you can reimagine God any way you want. And they imagine, it's like, imagine everyone standing on the Titanic, and you all say, let's imagine a ship that isn't sinking. All the while, it's really sinking. That's the emerging church. They're all on there, they'll say, who wants to vote for a non-sinking ship? Yes, I'm in. All the while, it's going down. That's the emerging church. And then, to me, what was so helpful is, I remember I was an airline pilot, and I heard Bob on Jan Markell, and I thought, this is the guy who actually has peeled back what the emerging church believes, because I was dealing with it at Bethel Seminary. And the key of it, if I were to boil down Bob's book, there's three E's that drive emergent, the emerging church. It's their epistemology, it's their emergence theory, And it's, just as Bob said today, it's their eschatology. That's the big one. They all tie into that. So if you want to know the engine of the emergent church, it's their epistemology, it's their emergence theory, and it's their eschatology. By the way, one thing Bob pointed out, it's interesting, um, poor guy doesn't have a voice, and this is his material, but he wrote this down. He said um, that he had heard someone on a political show saying that Rob Bell was being urged to run for office. Oh, I'm sorry. Rob Bell was urging someone else to... Oh, he's trying to... Oh, I see. Well, anyway, you'd written down, I think it's very astute, the current politics that claim to be progressive is a version of this type of theology. That's what happened is a lot of the Marxists in our society, they finally got a religion that backs up their politics. 
That's the blending of the emerging church and the progressive movement. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, oh I'm sorry. There you go, Tim. <laughs> uh, I have a couple comments. Um, one is it fascinates me, the, the concept of throwing out all physical laws. Uh, yeah. It, it just makes no sense. It's illogical. Um, and in my opinion, redefining something doesn't necessarily change the truth of it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it just astounds me. And finally, I think Trump should be praised for taking part in making the world better and closer to God. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Tim. Well, well, well said. Uh, you're right. Redefining something doesn't really change it, does it? And even the law of entropy, how can you get rid of that? And it shows at the heart of it, if you lose cause and effect, you've lost all scientific reasoning. Can you imagine trying to look for the cause of something and saying, well, it could be this cause, this cause, or this cause, or maybe it's uncaused? Well, as soon as something has, if you have an uncaused effect, you're down to magic. That's what you're left with. And so this is not only the destruction of theology, it's the destruction of all science, all scientific reasoning and the way that we've overcome diseases, the way that we've put together Western civilization. It's all done with the emergent epistemology. Christy. Um, as Peter said, we spent about three to four years in the emergent church, and we didn't know it. I think um, it's, it's very um, easy to miss even as parents and um, friends of others, um, they make it sound Christian. <laughs> it's seductive. Um, I would like to offer a few calling cards to um, pay attention to in your own loved ones' lives. Um, they have a lot of celebrity authors and pastors, as we've um, talked about. Um, the music... Um, is probably the one thing I think that gets them in the door and keeps them. Their um, sermons are full of entertainment, which some of this may not be news to you, but if you add them all up together, and this is what you're seeing the people go for, and then doing the social works, obviously. Um, they also, their environment um, can be very dark in terms of um, lighting, and then they use a lot of candles or they use um, things that make you get into a mood. And then their um, uh, what we call fellowship. Uh, they have book studies in small groups, and they're not Bible studies. They're books that have Bible verses in them and most of the time misused. Um, so I would just like to offer that for you to all think about and um, be very discerning. It's very seductive. Well, well said, Christy. Thank you. Yeah, Eric. Oh, I'm sorry. Scott. I was just thinking um, kind of a contrast between the emergent church and the Roman Catholic church. I mean, they're a lot alike, but, uh, <laughs> but um, Catholicism, as Bob was saying, is Christianized paganism where an emergent church is the opposite. It's paganized Christianity. Yeah, well said. And you know, I would say too, for the most part, Catholicism is under the modern rubric of knowledge, whereas the emerging church is postmodern. In other words, I can look at a Catholic doctrine and simply go to Scripture and say, well, that's not what the Scripture says. But in the postmodern milieu of the emerging church, they are claiming you can never come to a true interpretation. Um, that's why Bob said that they're the little engine that can't. What's connecting those two is mysticism. That's where they're connecting. So the mysticism that the Roman Catholics are delving into is really part and parcel to the same mysticism that the emerging church is delving into. And you're absolutely right. That's a, a connection between the two. Well, we're out of time. We'll do... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Somebody else said one more thing. Um, Eric, yeah, right, go ahead. I'll try and keep it short. Uh, I was just thinking of some of the false teaching verses in the New Testament and how they correlate, like the teaching on what their itching ears want to hear. Uh, there's one in 2 Timothy 3, 5, having the appearance of godliness uh, de but denying its power. It says, avoid such people. And then there's one in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
and not with clever speech so that the cross of Christ would become useless or emptied of its power. And uh, yeah, just kind of thinking of those verses when I was thinking of the uh, emergent church and a lot of them apply. Eric, well said. Yeah, we're, we're, way to end on that. Amen. Yep. I'll, I'll bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us words that can be understood cognitively through your scripture and that we can know you and your ways of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for Bob and all of his work here. We pray for his healing. I also pray, Lord, that if we run across uh, emergence and postmoderns, that you would help uh, pave the path, Lord, that we could preach the gospel to them. We pray that you would regenerate their hearts, bring them to true saving faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.